Greetings. You are listening to the next episode in our series of Ruth here on Let's Be Real. My name is Erica, and we are jumping into chapter one of the book of Ruth. Last week, we took the opportunity to just do a bunch of background knowledge and information that I hope you found insightful and somewhat interesting. Today, we're going to jump into the, the story of Ruth. We're kind of looking at it as a drama, almost like a play. So we are jumping into Act 1. Act 1 takes place in the land of Moab. We're seeing a conversation happen while still on the road of Moab. We're calling this the emptying of Naomi. What we're seeing is a crisis in the line for the future king. And it's this introduction in verses 1 through 5. Now, we spent most of our time last week in verses 1 through 5, so a quick refresher. I'm going to go ahead and read those for you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this idea of the emptying of Naomi is a pretty good descriptor of what she has gone through and what is going on. She is feeling... Like she has lost everything. She has emptied. And as a review, the purpose of the book of Ruth really is to serve as a bridge between the book of Judges and all of the apostasy that's there and the book of Samuel, which is really the story of David and how David comes to be. This story is showing how David could possibly emerge from the moral sludge that is the book of Judges. And it shows that there is Moabite or Gentile blood in the genealogy of Jesus. It was God's plan all along to have kings as part of ruling over the Israelite people. We see scripture that lay out what it looks like to have a king, what rules they need to follow, that kings will rule over his people. But in the book of Judges, we aren't there yet. And when we have a Limelech, whose name means my God is king, there still are no kings on the scene Yet it's supposed to be God that is king over his people. And as you can see through the story of Judges, it kind of goes in this sin cycle where that's not necessarily the case. They repent, then come back to him, and he rules in their hearts and in their lives, and then they fail off again. Genesis 17, 35, Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 17, we, we see scripture in all of those places that point back to the initial plan that God has had all along for kings to rule. And the story of Ruth is really setting the stage for that to come about and for that to happen. So our stage is set. We have our location. We know that we're in Moab. We've got our characters. We've got Elimelech and Naomi, his sons, their wives. And now down to just the three ladies. We have the cause of the crisis that has taken place, the famine in the land that has caused Elimelech and his family to leave. And we also have the target of the crisis, which is indeed Elimelech and his sons, as we have seen them pass away. I want to mention here that there are other famines in Scripture, and we get to see the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob each, have to face a decision in what to do in the face of famine. So Elimelech has patriarchs to look back on to see how they've handled it and see which way should I go. We have Abraham. He goes to Egypt in Genesis 12.10, and he didn't do it with the right 
motive, and it didn't work out well for him either. The same Hebrew word there is used, ger, the sojourn. We're just going to be there for a time. Didn't work out well for Abraham. In Genesis 26, we see Isaac tempted to leave, but we also see God warn him and then bless him when he doesn't. So Isaac is successful in his choice. He is faithful in following the commands of the Lord in regards to the famine that he faced. And then we see, last but not least, we see Jacob in Genesis 46. This is the story of Joseph, who he's sold off into slavery as a young boy, and he's almost sent ahead into Egypt to grow food, to manage it well, to have it stored for the seven years of famine that are to come. And that's where we see Jacob pick up and move his whole family down to Egypt where they're taken care of by Joseph. And here we see them flourish and reproduce and become a strong country, a sign of the blessing of God and him making the right choice in reacting and making a decision in terms of a famine. What does Elimelech do? He kind of follows suit like Abraham. And we see that Elimelech, his family was the opposite of prospering in the land of Moab. They were not like Jacob and his family in Egypt. Another sign of just the curse of his disobedience in leaving the land of Bethlehem of Judah. He was tempted. It said they left for the field of Moab is how it would have been heard in Hebrew. You know, it's greener on the other side. Very tempted to go. He is also sojourning. Elimelech's proper response here would have been to repent and to stay not to flee. And honestly, going to Moab is kind of ironic at this point. They're leaving the house of bread for Moab, a place where when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, the Moabites would not give them bread as they were passing through. He escaped famine, but he walked in to death. The boys would have given Naomi hope of a future for her and her family line and being taken care of had they been able to have children but they didn't have children before they left. Again, another potential curse. And the question to ask there is, would God have punished Moabites? Like the Moabites hadn't done anything wrong as far as they knew. So God probably punished Malon and Kilion with sterility instead of the women being barren, kind of like we saw Sarah for a time in the story of Abraham. We see Ruth conceived pretty quickly with Boaz, so it's not that she was barren, but potentially that Elimelech's son were indeed sterile. So we have this final blow to Naomi in the death and the loss of her sons. No forward hope for her in terms of preserving a line. And now the drama of the stage is set. We are ready to get into our play. Start with Act 1. But before we get there, just a quick reminder that the narrators, especially of the Old Testament, our Hebrew authors, they wrote not for entertainment. They wrote with a purpose for transformation. In the Hebrew Bible historiography, the theological message, it is usually implicit. They assume you'll get there and that you understand what they're saying. The New Testament the kind of Greek level of philosophy thinking, they're pretty straightforward and they tell you what it is, what they're thinking. So when you're reading the New Testament, you have questions that you need to ask and they're not about us. What does this say about me? How do I react? How do I move forward? How does this benefit me? No. The questions are, what does this passage tell us about God? What does this passage tell me about the world and the society in general at that time? What does it tell me about the human condition the nature of sin, and maybe even the destiny of humankind. 
What does this show me about the way that God relates to his human people? And then what's an appropriate and ethical and spiritual response to the work of God in one's life? We're going to take a look at all of those things in the story of chapter 1. Scene 1, we have Naomi and her response to her emptying. Naomi is encouraged by report that a famine in Bethlehem has ended because God's hand was upon them. It says that God visited, the Lord visited and intervened. And this helped her decide. In light of her own personal crisis, Naomi decides to head back to Bethlehem and unwittingly she sets the stage for a potential resolution to the crisis of the royal line. A crisis that they didn't even know they were in the midst of, not quite yet. The scene opens with Naomi headed back to Bethlehem, but most of the scene is taken up in a conversation she has with her daughter-in-laws, especially Ruth, who was determined to bind her future with Naomi. So we have Naomi's actions in verses 6 to 7. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to the return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. They're on the road. They're on the way. She's going home and the girls are coming with. And she's like, wait, you guys need to return. You need to go back. You need to shuv. If you've listened to my Jonah series, we talked about the word shuv. It's to stop. It's to turn and it's to go back. In many cases, it is the picture of repentance. And we see the word shuv and return used many, many times here in chapter one, at least 11 times in chapter one of Ruth. Naomi has a proposal for her two daughter-in-laws. She says, go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. May the Lord, Yahweh, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, Yahweh, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kisses them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So here we see Naomi's proposal to, his do- to her daughter-in-laws to shuv, to go back. She says that she has heard that Yahweh has given her people food, that God had intervened because he visited. And you know, that can be good, and that can be bad. There was a famine in the land when they left. That was bad. God visited, and now it is good. This is a picture of divine grace that gives Naomi hope. Something went from good, God visits, and something goes from bad, God visits, and it goes to good. The bread in Bethlehem is restocked. Why? Most likely because of repentance and coming back to the Lord. We know that at least Boaz's family has returned to a life or a path of righteousness. We see him having given instructions to his men on how to glean following the instructions of the Torah in Deuteronomy. So there is some righteousness in Bethlehem. We don't know how much else, but it was enough for the repentance and for the famine to be ended. We have three different exchanges between Naomi and the girls, starting in verses 8 through 17. We have Naomi telling the girls to go ahead and to go back. She gives them a blessing. She invokes the name of Yahweh to bless her daughter-in-laws. She said, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly, Hesed. We talked about that last week, this Hesed. May the Lord deal Hesed with you as you have dealt with the dead 
being her sons, as well as with me. The Lord Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. So there's some significance in this discussion and in this blessing that she gives to her daughters. Naomi is embarking on a very difficult discussion. She loves and is super attached to her daughter-in-laws. The idea of going back home, I'm sure, was a bit foreboding. Kind of like, ugh, I should, but do I want to? What am I walking into? Are they going to be excited to see me? Are they going to see me as a traitor? Or are they going to see me as somebody who needs to be taken care of? She's about to go on a very long journey at an older age, 10 years later. We don't know how old she was when she came, but she was probably in a bit more of her prime with her unmarried sons and now widowed. I'm sure it has aged her, the stress, the grief, and now she has a very long, strenuous journey back. How is she going to do this by herself? I can't bring the girls with me. How would they be treated? I'm sure she's thinking. They're Moabites. She needs to send them home. Here, Naomi is giving the girls an official release. She is giving them permission to go back home and pronounces a blessing on them. May Yahweh treat you kindly. May Yahweh grant you favor. Naomi is grateful for the kindness of the girls that they showed to her and her sons. And she uses the name of Yahweh. And this shows us some of maybe her theology is that she believes that Yahweh has authority outside of Bethlehem and outside of Israel. And she also assumes that he's interested in the life of individuals and the affairs of a family and that she could invoke him to be dealing with and deal favorably with Moabites. The second part of her blessing is that she is seeking favor and rest and security for her daughter-in-law, for both of them, free from worry in the house of a new husband. Now, typically, widows would be sent back to the house of their fathers to be taken care of for security, for rest. Here, she's releasing them to the house of their mother, and that's significant. We only see it three other times in Scripture, and where we see that always has something to do with love and with marriage, she is giving them permission to start over, to have a new life, to get remarried. Don't just go back home and be a widow in the house of your father. Go back to the house of your mother and be remarried. Lover at marriage is not an option for Naomi. She no longer has any relatives to offer to her daughters-in-law. Lover at marriage says that, that the brother of the husband or an uncle would marry them to continue the line of the deceased. But she no longer has any men in the line. There's no hope for her, and she does not intend on remarrying and starting again and having children. She is sending them home. She is releasing them. Ruth and Orpah, their first response is like, no, we're not leaving you. They're going to go. They're going to return. They're going to shove to Bethlehem with Naomi. Now, The word return makes no sense for them here because they've never been there before. But they are going to shuv. They are going to identify with her and with her point of view. They're going with her and believing alongside with her. They're cutting ties. They're not returning home. They're not going back to the life they once knew, but they're going to a new land with their mother, Naomi. In verse 11, we see Naomi's longest speech yet. It's an emphatic plead. She uses the word daughters here because of how much she loves them, and she is pleading with them. She's like, turn back, my daughters. 
Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She is pleading with her daughter-in-laws, go back. She is giving the second release. She's being sarcastic and bitter here. She's like, do I even have children left in my womb? And that word here in Hebrew is guts. Do I have a child in my guts? I do not. Are you really going to wait for me to remarry, to maybe have sons wait that long when you could go back and remarry? She's like, I am bitter. All bad things are happening to me. You don't even want to be with me. Go home. She is desperately trying to get them to return back because she cannot provide a home for them. She cannot provide a life of protection or even husbands for them. She is bitter. She's like, you don't want a part of this. The hand of Yahweh has been bitter against me. She blames Yahweh for her condition. The same Yahweh <laughs> that she just offered a blessing through to them, she now invokes his name as the curse upon her and the cause of it. We don't really know where she is right now in terms of her own spiritual maturity, to be able to use the name of God to bless others. But then when it comes to herself, she's like, oh, God hates me. He has done this to me. I am bitter. I am angry. I think we can relate. How easy is it? to use our words and our phrases to encourage others. But then when it comes to us, it's like, oh, no, the hand of God is against me. I am cursed. You don't want what I have. We can go down the bitter cycle pretty quick and spiral down into negative thoughts. And we see this here with Naomi. And now we see Orpah and Ruth. We see them in their second response. In verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept Again, this is a very verbal culture. There's a lot of noise. When someone passes away, they hire mourners to come and mourn aloud with them. We might be a little bit more subdued, maybe a little bit more private about our struggles. They are not. We see them weeping aloud. We have very verbal cues, but there's also some nonverbal cues. We see that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth clung to her. Orpah's getting ready to return home. And Ruth will not let go. Orpah had every reasonable cultural reason to return. What she did was a natural response and completely culturally acceptable. There is no option for her to be remarried here attached to Naomi. And she has been officially released. And the option that she took is just fine. There's nothing wrong about it. What's exceptional, however is Ruth denying the natural response and instead having loyalty and courage to Naomi. She does what isn't expected in this culture, and that's what we will continue to look at. We're in our third exchange in verse 15. We're down to two. We're down to Ruth and we're down to Naomi. There's an interesting parallel about what just happened in Matthew 8. It's a story of Jesus calling a scribe to follow him as well as a disciple. We don't really know the two choices that the men made. 
But it sounds as though, in Matthew 8, starting in 18 through 22, that the scribe chooses to follow Jesus. But the disciple says, well, I have to go home and I have to bury my father first. A culturally acceptable responsibility. A good reason to say no. But it's at the cost of following Jesus. We see the same picture with Orpah and with Ruth. In verse 15, we now see Naomi. She starts short, and Ruth is long. The tables have turned. Ruth is now calling the shots. After she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi is trying one more time, her third time, to get Ruth to go back home. And Ruth, she is not having it at all. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi gives this third release to Ruth to go back with Orpah, back to her mother's house and to her gods. Again, we don't know where Naomi really is spiritually because she blessed them through Yahweh. She blames Yahweh for her curse. But now she says, go back to Kamosh. Go back to the God of your land. Nations at the time, they were distinguished by ethnicity, territory, kingship, language, and religious devotion. Each land had their own deity that they worshipped and that they were loyal to. In Moab, it was Hamosh, Shemosh, C-H-E-M-O-S-H, Kamosh, Hamosh, however you want to say it. For the people of Israel, it was Yahweh. We see in Scripture the Moabite deity of Hamosh in Numbers and in Jeremiah. The Ammonites, they were the people of Malcolm. In Jeremiah 49, we see throughout Scripture the deities that were assigned to these nations. And now we have Naomi saying, go back and worship that one. Where is she coming from? She is trying everything she can think of to get Ruth to go back. But Ruth's response, where you go, I will go, is quite possibly thought to be one of the most well-known and most recognized quotes of Scripture. And it is poetic, and it's lovely, and if we are looking at it as a poem, we see five parts in an A, B, C, B, A format with C, the middle being the fulcrum. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And then she evokes a curse upon herself. May the Lord Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me for you. We see Ruth evoke Yahweh in a curse upon herself. If she does not do what she says she's going to do, she is making a covenant here. This is a vow that she's sealing with a curse. She is making a covenant. C is the fulcrum of this vow. It is a pivotal to your people, my people, your God, my God. There's no verb here in the Hebrew writing. If there were a verb, it would make it future tense. It would be like, your people shall be my people. Your God will be my people. But there's no verb here, which says it is present. It means your God is my God. Your people are my people. 
Ruth, she could not abandon Naomi. Even though it was uncertain and a dangerous future, she is attaching herself to her through this covenant. Ruth is declaring and showing us the depths of Hesed without using the word. She is sacrificing and giving everything. She gives of her natural alliance to herself back at home. She gives up everything personal for the advantage of Naomi. We are seeing here what the women of Bethlehem see later. We are seeing the action of Hesed. We are seeing biblical love, Aheb. It's not emotional. It's not romantic. It is a covenant commitment demonstrated in actions of the interests of another person. It is completely selfless, and it is always an action. Some say that this part, this speech, is the conversion of Ruth. Some say it's just a transfer of allegiance and of land and of people. We don't know what Ruth knew about Yahweh, but her pledge that she made was a very formal pledge of allegiance to him and to her. Of the six commitments that Ruth made to Naomi, only one was about faith. Your God, my God, your people, my people. The rest were about faithfulness. We have a declaration of faith And the other commitments are the expression of that faith. And the expression of that faith is indeed and in action. And that is called faithfulness. We have millions of Christians today, and it might even be us, and all over the centuries who have had faith. But far fewer of us can say that we live in true faithfulness. And then in verses 18 and 19, Naomi, she acquiesces. She gives up. She's like, fine. She says no more. Ruth is coming with her. She tried, but she's not going to win. And this is kind of our narrative conclusion to this scene, scene one. It's a battle of the wills between Naomi and Ruth, and Naomi gives in, and Ruth wins. And then poof, we're in Bethlehem for scene two, where we get to witness Naomi's interpretation, how she views her emptying. And this is In verses 19 through 22, this is a very direct speech that she is giving in Israel. The whole town is abuzz. She shows up unannounced. They may have heard about her loss. They might know what's happened to her. We're not sure. But we know she heard that the land of Bethlehem was no longer in a famine. So obviously information could go both ways. So she doesn't know what they know. We don't know what they know. She leaves in a good, positive, fruitful state, and she comes back. Older, empty, and destitute. And they say, could this be? Is this Naomi? And she says, do not call me that. Call me bitter. She is not at all subtle. She casts anger and she casts accusation at God. And she uses both the name Yahweh and the title Shaddai. There's only one name of God, the God of Israel, and it is Yahweh. However, there are many, many titles, and Shaddai is the title that she invokes. Shaddai is seen in Genesis six times, and it's all part of covenant promises with connection to fertility and or preservation of progeny in the family line. So she says, she blames that this is Yahweh's fault. He has done this to me. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord Yahweh has testified against me, and the Almighty Shaddai has brought calamity against me? We see Naomi's response and how she truly feels about what has happened about her. She was full. She is now empty. She is exasperated. She is bitter. She is angry. And the author uses clever words here, saying Naomi was so so exasperated, her words are double-edged. She was full in regard to her family, yes, and now she's empty. True. But when it came to food, she was empty and then left to be full. She is putting all of the blame on the Lord's shoulders. Bethlehem has been given grace, but not Naomi. Who is standing next to Naomi when she enters Bethlehem? Who does she not recognize? Who does she not introduce? Who does she not say anything about? She doesn't acknowledge Ruth with her to the town. There's a reason to be grateful and joyful. Somebody sticking by her side, showing true, deep, has said, Ahab, love to her who has given everything. But Naomi is so focused on her own anger and her bitterness and portraying that to the community that she doesn't even introduce Ruth. No joy, no gratefulness standing right next to her. We don't see it. It's so dramatic. And then the curtain drops on the scene. The narrator gives us a little bit more of timing information by saying, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, was with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the barley harvest. That information is important. One, I want you to pay attention to how many times you see Ruth the Moabite listed in the book of Ruth. Moabites were despised foreigners. They did not like them, and they make sure to communicate that by saying, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, do not confuse her, not at first, with an Israelite. But now we see them arrive back home in Beit Lechem at the beginning of, of the barley harvest. Barley was the first crop of the season to come in, and they show up just in time for the harvest to begin, and following barley is going to be wheat. They come in into the grace. They walk right in the front door. That's hopeful. That is hopeful for Naomi, and hopefully it's also prophetic. And if you know how the story goes, you know that that's true. So let's talk a little bit real quick about practical and theological significance that we see in chapter one, because we're asking ourselves that question. Well, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about how he interacts with his people? Not what does this teach me about me? But so far, chapter one really shows us this complex relationship between human decision making and the plan of God. We saw Elimelech make a decision for he and his family. We don't know if Naomi was an accomplice with that, we don't know if she had a choice to go along or if she simply went with Elimelech and obeyed. They made their choice. And yet, God is still working. He has something to do. He's got a goal and he's got a plan. And now we see even more decisions needing to be made by Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. They're all trying to figure out the best way to move forward. Who was right? Orpah? Ruth? Ruth had no way of knowing that her, the world would see as a foolish decision would have such a great effect on the future of Israel. The narrator tells the story in a way that we just get to sit back and we get to wonder at 
the working of the Lord and how he integrates human decision into the outworking of his divine plan, the redemption for the world. We get to sit in awe of his working. We also get to study a little bit into the nature of true love. Ruth's actions shows an under- biblical understanding of love, this Hebrew word, aheb, A-H-E-B, aheb. We see it in chapter 4, verse 15, written out, but it is on full display here in the beginning when Ruth ties herself to Naomi. In John three 16, we're all familiar with that. We see that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That verse isn't necessarily about how much God loved the world, but it's how he loved it in a loyal, courageous, sacrificial way. Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What this love, this true biblical understanding of love is, is it is sacrificial for another person. It is always an action, and it is a demonstration of a covenant commitment. Furthering that kind of discussion on true love, we see in Ruth's speech, her commitment to Naomi, she's got four significant elements of pledges of her commitment. She appeals to and resists all pressures that will break the relationship where they're going to go, where they're going to live. She's like, none of that matters. I am with you. A commitment to the other person for life. Your people will be my people. I will die where you die. I will be buried where you are buried. This is a lifelong commitment. I'm not looking for a way out. This is about the adoption of the other person's family and faith as one's own and the abandonment of prior Allegiances, think about this if you're married in light of your own marriage and the covenant that you make. You adopt the other person's family as your own. And fourth, Ruth shows an awareness that God is a witness to all of the promises that we make. Think about that in light of what is love? What does that look like? Is that how it looks like in my life, in my marriage? Is that how I view love? Or do I really think about it as a feeling? When I say, I'm not feeling very loved, I have said that. I have felt that. But biblical love that we see here in the book of Ruth, it's not about a feeling. It's about an action. So let's use our eyes and look to see, as well as to show and be sacrificial to those around us that we love. And last, the first chapter of Ruth, it really also shows us in the struggles of faith and unbelief. We have Naomi. We don't really know what to make of her in this first act. It kind of paints for us in this first chapter an ambivalent picture. She sees the end of the famine as God's grace. It's positive. But then she and she evokes his name to bless her daughters-in-law. That's really positive. But then when it has to do with her and her life, it's all negative. She wants the girls to go back to their gods. She almost shifts allegiance like, no, no, that's fine. It's go. Go worship them. Nothing was normal during the days of the judges, and it seems like her spiritual life wasn't either. We have no idea where Naomi is right here in chapter 1. She didn't have no faith. She definitely had some faith, but she was very much 
in a conflicted spiritual state. Conflicted world, her life, all of it. She was very confused. She was unaware of the rebellion in her own life, but very transparent and reflecting the pain that she believed that he casted onto her. Isn't that (laughs) the way of human nature? We have a really hard time seeing our own sin and our own struggles, but in other people, we see it like that. It's super clear. And yet, Yahweh did not abandon her because of her theology might have been a little off or might have been a little shaky or faulty or because she didn't really talk the best about him. She didn't use the acceptable theological cliches and all the right words. She was very angry. She was very upset. There were no hints that Yahweh was going to answer her prayer, her blessings that she put on the daughter-in-laws. There was no hint that he would respond to her outbursts. We know how it ends, though, and we know that he does, that he answers her prayers and he responds to her. Here is hope for those who struggle with faith and unbelief, with hope and despair for well-being and disaster. There's hope here. This reminds us that God does not demand perfection in those that he chooses to use to engage in his mission in showing grace to the world. You look at John 21 and ask Peter, (laughs) like, hey, how did that work out for you? Perfection is not required, but faith is. 